Welcome to B2B Better, the podcast that exists solely to help complex businesses understand and execute a modern day marketing strategy. My name is Jason, and I run a strategic advisory firm that helps B2B solution providers drive revenue through their marketing. Each week on this podcast, I sit down with industry experts to break down what it takes to effectively market a company working across long sales cycles, bespoke value propositions, and big buying committees. Here we go. So my name is Kyle Lacey. Yep, that's Kyle. And he's been around the block a few times when it comes to holding senior marketing leadership positions at high growth companies. He was recently appointed CMO of Jellyfish, but he's also been strategic advisor for Postal.io. He was the SVP of marketing at Seismic. He was also the CMO at Lessonly for just under five years. And I came across him because when he was at Lessonly, he was running some of the most creative brand campaigns that I've ever seen. I had to get him onto the podcast and talk to him about it. One of the things I love about Kyle is how he describes himself. I like to say what I do is serving marketing and sales teams. Uh, Most of my career has been spent building teams, whether that's been in content marketing or marketing as a whole. And I've worked for large software companies, small software companies, venture capital firm. So for what I do, it's how do you, how do I build a team that creates the best experiences possible for, for buyers and customers? Kyle's got a really good perspective on how to do modern day marketing. He understands, and we, we talk about it on this podcast, that it's not just about running brand plays and it's not just about running revenue plays, that you need both of them to be successful in B to B. The first question I asked him was, how does he strike that balance between creating demand and capturing demand? We can talk about revenue first. So I believe that the first order of business for any marketing team or leader is to invest a certain amount of percentage of of resources. And this includes headcount, just to be clear between 50 and 70% of resources invested into creation of revenue. So that could be pipeline. It could be closed one revenue. It could be, I mean, you could throw ABM in there, but that's, that's a little bit of a, I ultimately it's closing revenue. And how does that help sales with their attainment? When you have that as those type of conversations as a marketing leader, you have a seat at the board table which means that you have influence over investments. So that's the first thing. Figure out how marketing can help sales with attainment. This is a great answer from Kyle. And I think what makes it so great is that he leaves room for context. What he's saying is that you should be investing the majority of your marketing budget and resources into helping a company achieve a commercial objective. He's not saying definitively it has to be profitability. He's not saying definitively it has to be revenue. He's not saying definitively it has to be pipeline. He's saying that you need to find a commercial metric that is that is appropriate for your business and your role within that business, what is actually achievable, what's actually attainable, and focus your energy and your resources towards achieving it. And I think this is really important because there is a lot of chatter in certain B2B marketing circles that the only metric 
that marketing can and should be measured against is closed one revenue. And for the kind of marketers who are listening to this podcast, who likely work for companies where there is an an enterprise sales cycle, they work in established businesses where the majority of revenue is won through existing relationships. Perhaps the company's been in the market for a long period of time. If a prospective buyer wants to buy, they already know someone within the organization they can reach out to directly. Sometimes the attribution, the measurement of that closed one revenue for marketing is really hard to come by. Maybe you don't have a CRM. You know, there are plenty of nine-figure businesses out there that are managing their CRM on spreadsheets. And if you don't have a CRM, it's next to impossible to track close one revenue as a marketing team if you're operating across long sales cycles. So Kyle's answer is spot on, you know, the, the sentiment of it. Find a commercial metric and own it and divert the majority of your resources towards achieving it because that is what's going to unlock credibility and influence within the organization. But it's important when you do pick that metric to be contextually appropriate with what is actually achievable. Once you figure that out and the company's growing, you're hitting the goal, then it's a conversation around how can brand help support that. And I think a lot of a lot of my contemporaries, our contemporaries, feel like it's one, you can do all of it together. I have found it easier to separate the two. And for me, if I can get 50 to 70% of the budget producing and hitting the revenue number we need and it's growing. I can use the other 40 to 30%, 30 to 40% on experiences. That doesn't that doesn't mean you don't measure them. It just means that you're more focused on the experience than you are. And I know I'm going to get hate for just saying this. I'm just going to call it out. You can you can edit this part if you want. I'm not going to. But you care more about the experience than you do the actual outcome. That doesn't mean you don't measure it. So it means when you're thinking about an event, you're thinking about what's the best experience for the end user, not what is going to generate the most pipeline. Because guess what? A better experience is going to generate more pipeline. And I know that because we measure it on the back end, but that's not the reason to do it. So I want to be very clear. The 30 to 40% is about creating memorable experiences through advertising, through billboards. I don't care. Direct mail events, uh, a board game, a Lego, I don't care what you do, but it's not a t-shirt. It's not a Yeti tumbler. So that that's kind of how that's kind of how I balance it, but you can only balance it if you're actually generating the revenue. Because when marketers get screwed is when they go into a board meeting and they're talking about this new brand play, that's amazing and they just spent money on and they're going to be in the Atlanta airport and they missed their revenue number last quarter. There's a reason why some marketers lose their jobs in 16 months is because they go in and they're all brand play and not revenue. I'm always skeptical when I hear about a new VP of marketing or head of marketing and the first thing they do is they redo the website. Sometimes it's justified, but I'd say most of the time, it is just an opportunity for that new hire to place their mark on something. But it's exactly what Carl is describing here. It's a brand play. Unless there is something functionally inefficient with the website 
and you can categorically point to it and say, this is the source of us not hitting our commercial target. It's an example of a brand piece that marketers can get excited about and spend a lot of time and energy working on, but ultimately it doesn't actually drive any commercial success for the business, which is what is the most important thing to be worrying about here. And this is especially true in this macroeconomic climate we find ourselves in, where consumers, businesses, everyone is having to cut costs, find efficiencies, and really scrutinize return on investment. I asked Kyle to share his perspective on this and whether he thinks it's a wise move for brands to continue making brand plays with the economic climate the way it is. Number one is that you get agreement on what efficiency metric you're going to look at. Demand gen efficiency metric. You can do one or two. It could be cost per opportunity. It could be an overall like CAC number. Could be like make sure that you get to for $1 spent, you're making $1 or under. It depends on your growth model. You know, venture back companies tend to burn a little bit more. Make sure you have the metric agreed on from a board level and your boss and a team. Once you have the efficiency metric agreed upon, you still follow the same percentages. Usually what happens in, in, this, in this type of environment is that, especially for venture-backed companies, growth levers are pulled down, so you get less resources. That doesn't mean you still can't do a 60-40 split. I am not going to slow down brand investment right now. But what has to happen first? I have to have an efficiency metric that we're hitting, and I've got to be producing the pipeline needed to hit the growth target that we set at the beginning of the year. And if for some reason we're struggling with the growth target, we got to figure out if we can use some of that 40% to kind of help it. But rising tide lifts all ships, right? And I firmly believe that if the experience is there and it's memorable, you're going to see those growth targets go up because you are doing both appropriately. And I know that's, I wish that I could say there's like this defined way to do it. And I'm not talking about like the dark funnel and all this other crap. I'm just talking <laughs> about just the revenue number and you can do other things. So the only difference between how I'm approaching it now and how I approached it two years ago is that it's it's a it's a even more heightened it's a heightened focus on the efficiency of those channels in terms of generating pipeline and revenue. The brand stuff, I'm still approaching it the same way. It just might be a little less money. Brand campaigns, by their very nature, are more fun to work on, and they're more visible. Um, they're what win you awards, and they're what get your colleagues outside of marketing excited. But one of the biggest hurdles to overcome when it comes to activating a successful brand campaign is figuring out how to measure it. So I wanted to get Carl's thoughts on that as one who's done a lot of brand experiential, highly visible, highly creative campaigns. How is he going back to the board and justifying his decision? Here's what he said. I have a, like you, you and I could probably wax poetic about this for the rest of our time together, but I have a real hard time when creativity and experience is deadened because marketers are spending majority of their time trying to figure out how to measure the damn thing. 
And I know you've interviewed Jay Acuzno, and I know he would agree with me on this. Find one thing to measure for whatever you're doing. One thing. Like for PR, it could be share a voice. For an event, could be MPS, could be pipeline in the room. I do not care. So that when you are managing up or you are the manager, you can appropriately defend the spend. But you need to make sure you're aligned with your leadership team on what that metric should be. And then you make the best experience possible. The people, the, the podcasts that succeed are the ones that spend time thinking about the content and the experience, not, oh, I want to generate a million dollars in revenue off this in a year. The ones that do that and try to figure out the dark funnel and spend half their time building reporting are not focused on content. I mean, there, there will be systems in place in the future. I think Anthony Kanata is doing a great thing right now with his startup where we're going to be able to measure this stuff and there's going to be more guidelines around it. And we're going to be able to, to say, this is the outcomes and you can still do that, but damn, like, Create great content, create great experiences. And I'm not going to say that you just, it's like, and then they will come, but man, get off this high horse of let's measure everything because it's, it's making B2B marketing just a piece of shit. I agree with Kyle. Um, and I think that this constant need to measure every single dollar spent as a marketing team in B2B can have real negative consequences in terms of talent acquisition. You know, as an industry, we're trying to shake off this idea of B2B marketing not being boring. If we set constraints around ourselves in regards to measurement, which in turn influences the creativity of the work that we put out there. And remember, you know, marketing inherently is a creative pr profession that can have a real detrimental impact on our ability to attract new young, vibrant, creative talent into the industry. But it's easier said than done, right? We should only just measure one thing. We shouldn't get so hung up on the numbers. But a lot of the companies, the marketers of this podcast are listening to, be they tech companies, engineering companies, they are driven by numbers. You know, it's in the DNA of the organization to make data driven decisions. So how do you overcome that when your CEO, your CFO, everyone involved on a campaign is asking, what are the numbers that justify this decision making? How do you get going? For me, it's always been about starting small and growing incrementally. If you have a big idea for a brand campaign, what is the minimum viable product, you know, MVP version of that idea look like? that can be activated for low cost, ideally free of charge if possible. So you can start collecting some of those data points within the field that are gonna help unlock higher investments when presented to budget holders and decision makers within your organization. Think about you know if you wanted to launch an employee advocacy campaign, instead of saying, we're gonna roll this out across our 200 person sales force, start with five people that have demonstrated to you that they would be great candidates to get this program off of the ground. And they would be really bought into the idea and throw their weight behind it, in turn helping you make it a success from the get-go. And then once you've rolled out 
an MVP campaign over a short period of time and you've started collecting those indicative positive signals that things are going to head in, your, head in the right way, well, then you can take some of that data, you can take all that data and package it up and present it to the to the board or, or the budget holders and say, well, if this is what we could achieve for low cost or ideally nothing, imagine what we could achieve if we actually had a little bit of budget, a little bit of resource allocated to this initiative. This is the kind of approach that Kyle adopted when working at Lesson Lee for a campaign called the Golden Llama. Now, I would recommend anyone listening to this podcast to just check out some of the brand campaigns that Kyle ran when he worked at Lesson Lee. They published two different books. They had a clothing line during the pandemic. They printed a bunch of coloring books that were given or sent out to kids um, of, of their customers and their prospects. They just did a lot of really cool, fun stuff. But the Golden Llama, for me, stands out as one of the best brand activations from a B2B company I have ever seen. And it's not that it just looked great, but it actually contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars to the bottom line. So I got Kyle, whilst I had him on, on, on the phone, I asked him you know, to break it down for us. What was the challenge that you were facing? How did you activate the campaign? What were the results? How did you measure them? What would you do differently next time? And here he is, here he is running through it. We, we, actually, um, we actually didn't have a challenge necessarily. It was, it was all cultural. So we, at Lessonly, Ali Llama was a mascot. We don't have enough time for me to tell you why, but cute little llama cartoon. And every quarter we gave a Golden Llama Culture Award out. So um, there were people. We have a golden. We had a Golden Llama wall at our office. Like it was, it was ingrained. It was, it was anybody who lives the values. And Ben Battaglia, who at the time was our head of content, um, he had this idea to just send Golden Llamas to people. Like as a direct mail campaign, but the idea was, can we spread this this idea of do better work? Because Max was working on the book, do better work, and uh, can we do it in a way that's meaningful? And the whole point was, give this golden llama to somebody on your team that's exhibiting the values of your team or your company, and then it had a landing page. It had nothing to do with the software. We had training and enablement software, so doing better work was it just built into the messaging, right? Um, so we did like, I think, so we couldn't figure out how to produce them. First of all, um, there was no, I couldn't figure out a vendor to like produce golden llamas. So we found this, this really small shop up in upstate Michigan that produced these like little llama figurines. And we bought a hundred from them. They were like, they were so surprised because we probably, we've probably made that business money since, since then. But, um, and I spray painted 50 of them and they went like hotcakes from the sales team. Like it, like it truly, because it was just different because nobody else was doing that. They weren't handing, like everybody's handing out product one sheets and you could send these golden llama pieces out. And I, I mean, ultimately we shipped over 5,000. I spray painted the first 1,500 in my garage, like I'm going to die young because I've just in it, like spray paint. Well, your creativity is all coming from it's, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's just like fumes. you're seeing colors. <laughs> fumes. But, uh, but it's, but it, you can imagine like some of them were sticky and they're sticking to things and that's fine. But uh, we, so the first 2,500 source, 3 million pipeline and over 150 in close one revenue, direct source. 
So we actually made money off of it. But the the value was, is that all of these customers started talking about this philosophy of do better work. And it started our, what we called a movement, but was our culture that then the customers started living, which made everything just stickier. And we needed to do that because um, it was ingrained in what we what we did. And it was why Max, Max and Connor built the company. And so it just worked really well. And I, look, there wasn't a challenge. It was, what's something that we can do that's meaningful to what we know and what people will talk about? And so we go back to Rory Sutherland, one of my favorite quotes, and this kind of leads, this is the Golden Lama in general. It is much easier to be fired for being illogical than it is for being unimaginative. The fatal issue is that logic always gets you exactly the same place as your competitors. So that's the reason why we did it. And that's the reason why we did a Lego Llama later and the team, we did a board game, which surprisingly enough is being sold on eBay right now. <laughs> 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 Our Llama Land board game is being sold. Well, it's it's for sale for $45 on eBay right now. Um, and then that kind of led into the, like, Ollie Llama & Co. was the clothing line. We launched it lessonly. Then we launched it at Seismic called Aftershock. And it just kind of set the, the Golden Llama was the first thing that we did to set the stage for more of this experiential-based marketing. And then the coloring books came into it when the pandemic hit. So when the pandemic hit, people were terrified. They were terrified to advertise. We were terrified to do outbound calling. And so we took the majority of our budget for the first half of the year and spent it on things like career coaches for our customers that were laid off, the coloring book, word search. Uh, we hired uh, therapists to do webinars to invest in this, uh, this concept of do better work. And it started with the Golden Llama. And it kind of set the stage for how we thought about marketing at Lessonly early on. I love this campaign for three reasons. The first is just how different it is. Imagine being a B2B buyer and receiving in the post a golden llama figurine or going to an event and picking one up off a stand. It's just, it's patent interrupt. You know, it's compared to all the other usual, usual you know, marketing swag you can find out there. It's something that stands apart and no other brand is going to be sending you a golden llama. The second reason is it was relatively straightforward and easy to activate. I mean, I know they started sending thousands of these things in the end, but when it started, it was just a handful. And when you're working across an enterprise an enterprise sales cycle, or you're running an account-based marketing play, you're going to have a finite number of accounts that you're trying to reach. So doing something similar to the Golden Llama campaign, and I'm not saying kind of rip it off and replicate it because it is very lessonly and there's a story behind it, and we're going to come to that in just a second, but doing a cool piece of differentiated swag sent to a handful of select accounts is very easy and very straightforward and very cost effective for any B2B brand to get off the ground. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier about indicative positive signals. 
do a hundred of these, send them out over a specific time frame, and measure the quantitative and qualitative results that you get back off off of it before deciding to invest in another hundred or another thousand or another ten thousand. And the third reason I love it is just how closely it ties to the brand values of Lessonly, the organization. And Carl said it a couple of times, do better work. This was the very ethos of the organization. And this campaign, which was all about identifying and rewarding those individuals within your organization that are doing better work, it just ties up so neatly from a messaging perspective. Speaking to Carl a little bit further though, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. There were definitely campaigns that fell a little bit short of the mark, um, but were still incredibly valuable from a learnings perspective. So I asked him to have a think and tell me about one of those experiences. I'd say for the amount of time and energy and money we spent on the board games, they were we had a lot left over. <laughs> it was a great game. It was like we spent so much time and the team played it together and everybody loved it and it just didn't work. Number one is because you can't hand out a big board game at a trade show booth. The set and, you know, it's really expensive to ship a big board game. And we had one for sales, one for customer support and one for just general. Like we did three different ones. So we spent a lot of money on this idea and I wouldn't say that it generated a ton of pipe. What I learned from it though, was the, the, the importance of people having fun doing a project because the team absolutely loved it. Now we probably could have thought through the actual delivery of it to people. Um, but as we talked about, it's being sold on eBay now. So I don't know whether I should be happy or sad about that. Uh, the second one was we did, uh, Zendesk was our biggest partner, largest partner. Uh, they were investor in our Series C. And we did a Zen Garden as part of a direct mail and trade show booth thing. Uh, I think we gave away one at <laughs> Zendesk Conference. <laughs> because they were so heavy. Like, it, like it was, I mean, it was six by six, probably inches. But nobody wanted them because they were like, where am I going to put this? And it was the same with the board game. So for both of them, we just didn't think through the actual application of the experience. Um, and then there was sand everywhere and they looked cool, but it was just a dumb, it was just a dumb idea and it didn't work. And eventually we threw away 90% of them because we couldn't even give them away. Nobody wanted them. So those are, those are probably the two that just, just didn't work. You miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. And as we've already said, marketing is a creative profession and creativity is not something that can be manufactured. It's not something that is repeatedly going to hit time and time again. But you have to go through these experiences, much like Carl and his team did at Lessonly and the other organizations he's worked with, to try and push the boat out and do something different. In B2B marketing, it's so important. Everyone is doing the same thing. They all look the same. They all sound the same. So taking a risk and pushing the envelope on what is possible from a marketing perspective is usually enough to capture mindshare with your prospective clients, particularly if you work in more traditional and conservative industries. And for the marketers that are listening to this that do work in those kind of industries, 
Carl had a few words of wisdom as we close out this episode. Okay, there's two, there's two things. Number one is align with your sales team. Make sure that they are in agreement with what you want to do. And then most traditional businesses have targeted accounts. Like any business, you have a list of targeted accounts that you want to either get into or you want to sell. And for me, it's how do you create 10, you could create five, you could create 20 really personalized experiences, direct mail. It doesn't have to be that expensive. And test the test it with 10 targeted accounts and make sure that you agree with your sales team on what you're going to do. And if that thing gets them in the door, that is what you use for the business case of the bigger campaign, the larger campaign. So bite-sized chunks, right? And every business, I don't care if you're traditional or your high-growth software, you have a list of targeted accounts, whether that's getting deeper in a customer or a net new, like test it. And then if the test works, use that as a business case to then roll it out company-wide. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. Also check out my newsletter, B2B Byte, where I share Monday marketing advice for B2B solution providers. There's a link in the description of this episode. And if you're looking for support on transforming your marketing from a cost center to a revenue driver, check out my website, www.b2b-better.com, where you can book a free 30-minute consultation. See you next time.